Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much at the beginning of your Sabbath hours that we can gather together like this, a group of physicians, dentists, healthcare providers, where we commit our lives and our careers to you. And Lord, as I recount this story, I pray that you will please anoint my lips. May this be a testimony of your faithfulness. And I pray that your message will shine forth clearly tonight. All these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So early April, sorry, early 2017, July, August 2017, this is just when I was starting my hematology oncology fellowship at Mayo. And I was rotating, as luck would have it, through the leukemia service. Now, the leukemia service tends to strike fear in the hearts of new fellows, especially, because you're kind of on edge. At any time of day or night, you can get notice that you're getting an admission for an acute leukemia patient coming in. And this was made doubly stressful for me at that time because of my relative lack of experience. So when an acute leukemic arrives on the floor, what am I going to do? They're coming to see me. Oh, boy. Well, this was such a day, August 2, 2017, we got this admit, and I'll call her Mrs. Z. She was a 59-year-old woman who first presented to her outside hospital uh, because of a persistent cough. They took a chest x-ray, which showed a left lower lobe infiltrate, and thinking that this was pneumonia, they got some basic labs. And to their surprise, the labs showed cancetopenia. So they went ahead and did a bone marrow biopsy, and that showed acute myeloid leukemia. And at that point, she was transferred to Mayo for a higher level of care. And when she arrived, the first thing we did was another chest x-ray, and that confirmed, indeed, she had this left lower lobe infiltrate. Well, we got labs on her as well, and our initial labs, you might not be able to see it too well from where we are, confirms her uh, pancytopenia, her hemoglobin was 6.7, platelet count of 74, white count of 1.8. And a peripheral blood smear, which is the most important thing to a hematologist, confirmed uh, her outside diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia with circulating blasts. And then we got her report from her outside bone marrow, and it showed there was at least 60% marrow involvement by blast cells. And to get a diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia, you need only 20%. So she definitely had uh, AML. So we were going to confirm everything with our own testing, with our own bone marrow, but in the meantime, we said, this is the real deal. She needs treatment right now, because AML, acute myeloid leukemia, left untreated, is uniformly fatal, uh, usually within days, if not within hours. But we were in a treatment dilemma, because she had two things going on, right? She had the lung infection, and she had the AML. And if you give chemotherapy while someone has an acute infection going on, it could be fatal, and it could make the infection much worse. So we were deciding which one is the more urgent one to treat, and we said, well, let's go ahead and give her really strong IV antibiotics, at least for the first 24, 48 hours, to try and get on top of her infection, and then let's give her the chemo. So we decided on that, and we talked to her, we talked to her family, and she was very nervous. But I got the sense that she was a woman of faith, simply because of some of the phrases she used. And she had a large family. She had six children, four of whom were at her bedside the moment she landed in our hospital, and her husband was there too. And throughout her entire hospital stay, I don't think I've seen fewer than five people in a room at any given time. 
So a woman who's very loved, a family that just surrounded her with warmth and care, and we said, this is the plan. We'll start with antibiotics first. We'll watch you very closely. And once we deem that it's safe, we're going to charge forward with the chemotherapy for your AML. Well, over the next 48 hours, unfortunately, she did not improve with the antibiotics. In fact, her respiratory function was even worse. And she grew increasingly short of breath. She was having fevers. And on Friday, August 4th, we, they did a bronchoscopy with BAL. And that showed an extremely thick, viscous, mucus plug in her left lower lobe. Uh, and to the point where the pulmonologist tried to grab at it with the forceps and was unable to remove it. It was so tenacious. And he finally said, you know what, I'm going to leave it alone because I don't want to cause a hemorrhage. I don't want to damage anything. So they had to leave it in there. Well, that night, after the bronchoscopy, or maybe even because of the bronchoscopy, she developed worsening shortness of breath, increasing oxygen requirement, persistent fever, and she had a rapid response called, and she had to go to the ICU. And there they did a chest x-ray, and that showed that things were actually looking worse. In addition to the left lower lobe infiltrate looking like it's progressing, she had opacities now appearing on the right lobe. And so this is not looking good. So hospital day four, Saturday, we noted that, okay, she is not turning the corner on antibiotics. The bronchial alveolar lavage samples came back, and they looked pretty bland. There was nothing to suggest infection. All of her blood cultures and everything were coming back negative. So infectious disease didn't feel like this was a primary infectious process that was driving this. So the consensus between the ICU team, our team, the infectious disease team, was that she was developing ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, but the etiology was unclear. And because they were thinking it's less likely to be infectious, we felt, well, maybe, maybe this is the leukemia that's just taking off so much that it's actually infiltrating her lung parenchyma. And if that's, the, if that's the real cause, then we need to treat her right now. But if we're wrong, and there's any component of this that's infectious driving it, then starting chemo could kill her. So we had a really long, hard talk with her and her family, and they understood the risks. But in the end, we decided on a compromise, because the way you treat AML is you do a regimen called 7 plus 3. It's two types of chemotherapies. They've been around for four decades, and it's the same way we treat AML still today, where for seven days, you give a relatively low dose of one chemotherapy called cytarabine, but for the first three days of that seven, you give a very potent chemotherapy. It's an anthracycline. And this is kind of the workhorse chemotherapy. So we decided, let's go ahead and start the cytarabine. And towards the end of that week, if she's looking like she's improving, then maybe we'll add the anthracycline on the back end. So it'll be, it'll be 7 plus 3 in a, in a reverse way. So the family felt that, okay, that's a good compromise between treating and, and not treating. And the whole team felt good about that. So we said, all right, let's go ahead and start chemotherapy today. <coughs> well, that happened to be a Saturday. And on Saturdays, the fellows get to leave um, after rounds. So it's a, it was a half day for me. So I gather up all my things, and I go to the elevator, press the down button, and I'm anxious to leave because if I hurry... I can make it to church and catch some of the service with my family. They're still there. And so I'm eagerly waiting for the elevator door to open when the strangest thought crosses my mind. And the thought is, why don't you go back to Mrs. Z's room and offer to pray with her? 
I said, okay, well, that sounds reasonable. Tomorrow. When I come in tomorrow, I'll pray with her. First thing tomorrow morning. No problem. But the thought, the thought just does not leave me. Why don't you go right now to her room and pray with her? And that's when you... Have you ever felt that the Holy Spirit was moving on your heart? But you felt that what the Holy Spirit was prompting you to do was so ridiculous that you start arguing with yourself and saying, well, that makes no sense. I mean, I can come and pray with her tomorrow. I'll incorporate it into my morning rounds. It'll be natural. Why go now? And in fact, what would you think if you were the patient? Doctor decides we're going to start chemotherapy. You're eagerly awaiting or nervously awaiting chemotherapy to start. And then the doctor kind of comes back for no reason at all and says, hey, uh, can I pray with you? (laughs) What would you think as the patient? (laughs) Right? I didn't want to freak her out. And so I'm I'm saying, well, Lord, I'll definitely pray with her, but I think the more appropriate time and context will be tomorrow, in the middle of rounds. I don't want to scare her. You know, she's scared enough as it is. But the thought would not leave me. John, go back to her room right now and pray with her. Elevator door opens. I have a decision to make. I'm packed up, ready to go to church. I say, Lord, okay, I will go back right now and I'll pray with her but you aren't responsible for whatever happens next. <laughs> if she freaks out, then, then I'll tell her that you made me do it. <laughs> so I go back to her room, <coughs> and her family is all back at the hotel, and just one daughter is at her side. And they look at me, and obviously they're surprised, and they say, oh, Dr. Shin, was there something else? And I just kind of mumble and say, oh, I just came back to check on you. How are you doing? I look at her IV bags and act like I'm inspecting things. <laughs> and I don't know how I'm going to bring this up. Do you ever get the sense that you know that God wants you to pray with someone, you just don't know how to bring it up? And you wish there was like an obvious segue that you can take and say, yes, and I'll segue right into prayer. But there's no other alternative but awkward at that moment. <laughs> And that's where I was. And I was totally at a loss of what I was going to do next. I said, Lord, how am I going to bring up? Am I just going to be like, hey, so um, would you like some prayer? You can't exactly segue like that. And then I looked and I saw she's wearing a necklace and it's got a little cross on it. And I said, there you go. That's it. And I look at her and I said, Mrs. Z, I take it, I like that necklace of yours. I take it that you're a woman of faith. And she her face brightens up. She's like, oh, Dr. Shen, if it wasn't for my faith, I wouldn't be where I am today. And she and her daughter just open up about how God has been so faithful to her all her life, blessed her with a beautiful family. It turned out that they were devout Catholics and the faith, their faith meant everything to them. And as I listened to her story, it became the most natural thing at the end of it to say, you know what? I am so glad to hear you say that because, you know, as a fellow believer, I, I believe that despite anything that we doctors do, any healing comes from him. It comes from above. And he is the true physician up there. And Mrs. Z, I want to let you know that he is the one who is the overall overseer of your care. The Lord is in charge of your care and he's the master physician. So before we start chemotherapy, Would you find it helpful if I said a word of prayer for you to bless the therapy? 
And I can see her eyes welling up with tears. And she was saying, oh, Dr. Shin, would you? That would mean so much to me. So I take her hands in mine, and her daughter comes around. And I pray for her. And I pray that the Lord will bless the therapy. But more importantly, I pray that he'll be with her during this hospital stay. To be with her when she's alone and her thoughts wander to dark places. To remind her to turn to him for help and strength and not to look within. And after I finish my prayer, she has tears. We all have tears. I hug her. I hug the daughter. I say, God bless you guys. I'll be in tomorrow to check on you. But let's leave everything in his hands. And boy, it's, you can feel the moment change when she, it was tense, nervous. When's the chemo going to start? What's it going to be like? To now, everything is in God's hands. And so I walk out of there and I say, Lord, thank you for giving me my Sabbath blessing. Boy, I can't believe it took me this long to finally say, okay, I'll do that. But I thank him and I said, Lord, I don't know why it was so important that I prayed right now, but I'm sure glad I did because I feel like that was exactly what they needed. And I didn't know then, but the daughter was actually keeping a blog on Caring Bridge. Now, Caring Bridge is a, is a blog site that many patients and their families use to give updates on their loved ones' health progress. And in the process of pre- uh, preparing this talk, I happened to find it. So all of this I'm looking at it retrospectively, but this is the post that her daughter wrote after, after that event. She wrote, I saw God at work today. Dr. John Shin, who is one of mom's hematologists and her favorite doctor, (laughs) came to mom prior to chemo and told us that he likes to pray with his patients before they start their first dose of chemo. He prayed for mom's healing, for the doctors and nurses to give the proper treatment needed, and said, I'm a doctor and I try to heal, but the true healer is above. During his prayer, I happened to open my eyes and glance at him, and I know I saw God. His words of prayer were just what we all needed to hear at that very moment. Mom remains in great spirits and continues to amaze us with her resilience. I read, Mom, all the supportive messages you all have left on this site, and we are so very grateful for the prayers and positive thoughts being sent our way. Thank you. We know that God has Mom in the palm of his hand and will carry her through this. You know, when God sends you to do something, you leave the results in his hands. And he always has a grand design in mind. And even though you can't see what fruit your work may bear, he is sowing seeds through you. And the most important question is, are you being willing to be used by him in that moment? And do you leave the harvest and the results to God? And that's what he teaches me every single day. So I went to church, wonderful service, came back the next day, Sunday, and I checked on her chart. And to my horror, I find that Throughout the course of the night, she developed worsening respiratory distress and had to be intubated. And this morning's chest x-ray looked absolutely terrible. I mean, whatever this was, it was progressing. And the disturbing thought hit me. What if I had refused to go back and pray with her? What if that prayer I had with her yesterday was the last conscious prayer that she prayed before she died? And what if I was not willing to pray. And what if I said, Lord, I'll pray with her tomorrow. I would not have had that chance had I waited just one more day. It reminds me of this quote from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 423, paragraph 1. It is important to believe God's word and act upon it promptly while his angels are waiting to work for us. Evil angels are ready to contest every step of advance. 
When God's providence bids his children go forward, when he is ready to do great things for them, Satan tempts them to displease the Lord by hesitation and delay. He seeks to kindle a spirit of strife or to arouse murmuring or unbelief and thus deprive them of the blessings that God desired to bestow. God's servants should be minutemen, ever ready to move as fast as his providence opens the way. And delay on their part gives time for Satan to work to defeat them. See, God does, Satan does not need to make us say, Lord, I'm not going to obey. All he needs to make us say is, Lord, I will obey later. I will obey tomorrow. He simply needs to make us delay obedience and then he's won. And it sent a shiver through my spine as I was chart rounding on her that morning, thinking, what if I had waited to pray? Lord, thank you. You see, although in this specific instance, I obeyed that still small voice, it brought to memory countless other occasions where I actually did not. And it made me wonder, what kind of service did I rob God of that I would never know about now because of my hesitation to obey? Matthew 25, 41 through 44 says, Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. In our Christian walk, we tend to be preoccupied with things that we should not do. But this passage tells us that in the final day of judgment, we'll be judged by the things that we neglected to do, and not so much the things that we did do wrong. And it makes me wonder, what opportunities to serve God are we missing out on on a day-by-day basis simply because we're not listening or we're refusing to obey when we hear him? It was a lot of food for thought for me. So as the day went by, it was, she was developing refractory hypoxemia despite being on 100% FiO2. They repeated a bronchoscopy, and this time they showed a large amount of this dark blood-tinged secretion very consistent with diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. So this was DAH. And we started her immediately on high-dose steroids, and that cytarabine chemotherapy, the low-dose chemotherapy that we were starting, we stopped it after just 16 hours of infusion. And we were wondering what is going to happen to her, but she can't tolerate treatment. Hospital day six, Monday, no change in her respiratory status despite starting high-dose steroids. She started needing pressure support. Her blood pressures were getting soft. And she was having persistent fevers even though her infectious workup was completely negative. And it was clear that she was dying. And since nothing else was working, no tests were coming back positive for a clear etiology, we decided, well, just in case this is leukemia that's doing this to her lungs, which would be highly atypical, but maybe it's really bad. There's nothing else that we can point to in her body that's an active process. Let's go for broke. Let's try to resume the chemotherapy. Because it's clear that if we do nothing, she's going to die anyway. So let's die trying to treat her. And that was the consensus of her family as well. And they said, you know, she's deteriorating fast. Please do something. So we resumed the cytarabine. 
Hospital day seven, Tuesday. Little bit of, incre- little bit of improvement in her uh, FiO2, came down 60%. She was weaned off presser support, and we were thinking she was turning a corner. And then on hospital day nine, August 10, we note that she developed severe thrombocytopenia. So she, was, she had low platelets to begin with coming in, and we knew that giving her some chemotherapy might further lower her counts, but not, we weren't expecting to this degree with the small amount of chemo that she received, and so quickly. So naturally, we tried to give her platelet transfusions to bring this up, but the moment we give her platelet transfusions and we check her platelets again, they have not budged. They refuse to budge an inch. In fact, they would frequently go down more. And in the world of transfusion medicine, when you give a transfusion of platelets and you check a CBC within an hour and the number hasn't changed, this is highly suspicious for alloimmunization, which means the patient has developed an antibody to an antigen that occurs on most platelets. And so now, and this is out of nowhere, you usually see this condition in patients who've been heavily treated in the past, they've needed multiple transfusions, they've had time to develop antibodies against other people's blood. As far as I know, she's never had transfusions in her life. She just happened to have an alloantibody against platelets in this time when she needed it the most. So the transfusion medicine team scoured their databases at Mayo to look for any matched donors, and they found that in a 300-mile radius, there were two people who could give her compatible platelets, and they put out an SOS call for them, and God bless these two people. I don't know who they are, but they agreed to come in and alternate every other day coming in to donate platelets for as long as it took, and they were just on standby. But what that meant is that her platelets were such a precious resource. We had one unit maybe every other day going in, and, and if it didn't, whatever good it did, if they were consumed or she lost platelets, we'd have to wait until the next donor could come in and donate more platelets. And remember, she's bleeding into her lungs, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. With her platelets dropping, she was in a very tenuous situation here. On top of that, as if this wasn't bad enough, around the same time, she started developing renal failure. And as she became more uremic, well, that's not going to help her platelet function either. So we see she's really going down the tubes really fast here. So as if that wasn't bad enough news, around this time, we, her bone marrow results that we did came back. And in order to diagnose AML, AML is not the same. Acute myeloid leukemia is categorized into favorable, intermediate, and poor risk based on the presence of certain genetic mutations. And when we saw her bone marrow report, we saw that she had the poorest risk imaginable. She had a P53 deletion, complex cytogenetics, which means multiple, multiple uh, chromosomal abnormalities. This is the type of AML that is highly likely to be refractory to therapy, and even if it responds to therapy, is at a high risk for early relapse. Okay? So we kind of took a step back as a team, and we surveyed the landscape. Here's a lady with an extremely poor prognosis. She's got this respiratory failure with acute respiratory distress syndrome of unknown etiology with diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. And on top of that, she's pancytopenic and now worsely thrombocytopenic, alloimmunized against platelet transfusions, in renal failure, and now just diagnosed with the worst risk category AML that we know of. Not tolerating even single monotherapy with cytarabine, which is the lightest dose of chemo we can give for AML, not even tolerating that. And even if she could tolerate the whole thing, highly unlikely that her uh, leukemia would respond because it's such terrible risk. 
So a very, very poor prognosis indeed. So on Saturday, August 12th, we completed only six out of the seven days of cytarabine because her platelets became so low that we became afraid that at any moment she was going to hemorrhage diffusely into her lungs and just die. So we said we have to stop because the cytarabine is not going to help her platelets. We just cannot continue. And so we held a family conference the next day and the ICU team was there. We were there as a hematology team and we were very honest with them. We said, look, cure is off the table. Okay, let's get that straight. And your mother's only hope for a meaningful remission is to get her to the point where we can do an allogeneic bone marrow transplant. But a bone marrow transplant is not even a pie in the sky kind of a dream for her. It is absolutely impossible. She's not even able to tolerate cytarabine monotherapy. There is no way she's going to tolerate high-dose chemo that will condition her bone marrow to get transplanted. It's going to kill her, without a doubt. So let's just take that off the table there. So without being able to do a bone marrow transplant and not being able to tolerate even the weakest chemo we have and having the worst type of AML she has, it's a pretty hopeless situation. Plus, her multi-organ failure made it unlikely that she could ever leave the hospital. And as we were spelling this out, trying to do it as gently and as sensitively as we can, as we could, the family members nodded that they understood. They were tracking along. But at the end of it, they said, but you know what? We believe that God can still work a miracle. Have you been in a situation like this where you have to tell the patient extremely bad news? And as a physician, you know where this is headed. And then the family with all their sincerity, says, but we believe God can work a miracle. What do you say in a situation like that? You want, to, you want to preserve that space where God can intervene, but you also want to help them prepare for what very well may come next. And so when the family said that, all the physicians at the table kind of looked at each other sideways and they said, yes, he could work a miracle. But what's far more likely to happen is that your mother will probably pass away here in the hospital and we wanted to know if you knew what her wishes might be in this situation. But the family did not want to hear it. They said, nope, we have to give God time to work. Because you see, they were claiming Bible promises, such as this one, Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. James 1, 6 through 8 but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Or maybe even Hebrews 11.6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So they were quoting these texts and saying, we are going to hang on to the belief that God will heal our mother. And we said, that's fine. And we sure hope he does. But for now, I guess we just have to revisit the question later. So they refused to change her code status. Or they said they just weren't there. And we completely respected that. But as we walked out of that room, there was a heaviness in our hearts. Because we knew, well, I don't think they're seeing reality. But you see, as Christian physicians, we often struggle to strike this balance, right? This balance between informing our patients of what's most likely to happen without eradicating hope. How do you do that? 
And we always want to give God room to intervene, right? But we also don't want to give our patients false hope. So how do you navigate that fine line where you have to bring them down to earth and be realistic and at the same time say, but don't give up hope? And this is something that I struggle with on almost a daily basis as I work with cancer patients, with people who are Christian especially. So after that day, you know, the family knew that I prayed with uh, Mrs. Z at the beginning. And so they would not let me leave the room without praying with them. And I love to pray with them. But I struggled to find the right words. Words that would not take away hope, but yet would acknowledge that everything is in God's hands and that our eyes are on him. Hospital day 17. So after 12 days at this point of being intubated, the ICU team was saying, look, there's no respiratory, there's no improvement in her respiratory status. This ARDS is likely to have set into permanent fibrosis, so whatever pulmonary deficiencies we're seeing now, likely to be permanent. It's not going to turn around. She's still having refractory thrombocytopenia, and so the ICU team said, we need to have another care conference. We have to talk more about goals of care. So we did. The next day, Saturday, we had a, later that day on Friday, we had a care conference, And again, ICU team, hematology team, we sat down with the whole family and we explained, look, the ICU staff is very concerned about the prolonged intubation. Typically at this point, they would transition to a tracheostomy, but because her platelet count was so low, no one was willing to do that and touch her. So they couldn't transition her to a trach, which means that now there's a high, high risk of vocal cord damage, the prolonged sedation. They were worried about cognitive deficits, neurologic deficits. And then on the heme side, we, again, told her about the grim prognosis to say, look, therapy is off the table. She could not tolerate even the lightest chemo. And even if we could give her the best chemo we had, it's not going to touch her leukemia. It's of such high risk. And with her platelets being what they are, no one's going to do anything for her. So there's, unfortunately, three options for your mother, none of which are good. The first one is just observe. Don't do anything. And that's likely to end in eventual death as one organ system fails after another like it's doing now. The second option would be compassion extubation. But with her pulmonary function being what it is, we all know that's going to end in quick death. And the third option is going to be let's go for broke and let's just treat her. But given where her platelets are and the hemorrhage in her lungs, we knew this was likely going to prove fatal too. So three options, all of which end in death. And we were basically telling the patient's family, so which one do you want? Which one do you want? And you can see tears in their faces. They were tracking along. This was not an unreasonable family. You know, you meet some families, medical literacy is very low, and it's frustrating to try to help them to understand what's going on. This was not that family. Educated, tracking along, they knew exactly what was going on. But the daughter said, you know, God can still work a miracle. And she said it softer this time, but there was still conviction in her voice. God can still work a miracle. And at this point, it was obvious to me that the ICU attending and the hematology attending had pretty much run out of patience. They looked at each other again and they said, look, you guys, we know how this is going to end. But we respect that it's a difficult decision for you. Take as much time as you need. And they said, yeah, we're not ready to give you an answer now. We want to leave her full code as it is. So please, let us talk amongst ourselves. We totally understand what you're saying. We know this is a serious situation, but we need more time. And so all the doctors said, that's totally fair. 
take as much time as you need. And so we all filed out of the room. And as we walked out, I saw the ICU attending and our hematology attending kind of looking at each other, shaking their heads, saying, this is not going to end well. And they were pretty much exasperated, and they're like, well, I hope they make a decision soon because the disease is going to make a decision for them very, very soon. And as I was walking away, (coughs) I felt that still small voice again. And this time the voice told me, John, go back into that room and talk to them. And I stopped dead in my tracks. I said, that is the last thing I want to be doing. Why would I leave this emotionally charged meeting where they need space to talk amongst themselves and what am I going to do by myself and walk back in there and say, hey guys, are you kidding me? No, that was not you. And I keep walking. (laughs) And I'm getting to the elevator and I hear, and I just can't shake the impression, John, go back there and talk with them by yourself. And I'm saying, no, 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 this is not happening. I am not going back in that room. There is absolutely no way. And really, if you saw me at that moment, you would think that I'm hearing voices or I'm schizophrenic as I argue with myself, like, what am I even going to say if I go in there? Am I going to knock, knock, hey, guys? (laughs) Just wanted to know if you needed some more company. Like, what am I going to say? And the thought hit me. John, tell them the story of your father. Because you see, my father was diagnosed with brain cancer in 2008. And I was in a similar situation to them where he was intubated and sedated and the doctors were giving us no hope. And they sat around in a conference similar to this one where they told us, you need to decide on his code status. And my mother and I, we were not willing to change his code status because he was still responding to us when they lowered his sedation I would ask him questions. I would ask him to squeeze my hand. He'd squeeze it. When I ask a yes or no question, he would nod his head or shake his head. He was still there. How could I pull the plug on my father? And so we left him full code, and we couldn't decide. And the hospital staff was not subtle about showing us their displeasure. And they basically told us to our faces, you know what? We hope that our family would never love us as much as you love your dad because that's selfish love and you're actually hurting him. So that's probably not the best way to have a goals of care conference. <laughs> and so we, weren't, we didn't come on that strong, but I, can, I knew that's where our hearts were as practitioners. We were frustrated with this family. Guys, this is what's happening. You have to come to grips with reality and move on. But I remembered my story. And I remembered how after talking to the doctors and feeling their exasperation, I ran into a bathroom in the hospital, locked myself in there, and cried my heart out to God. And I said, God, if you're going to heal my dad, if you're going to work a miracle, now is the time. Now is the time. But if you're not going to heal him, then what are you waiting for? Put him to rest. Let this end. But please don't put me in the position where I have to pull the plug on my father. And with tears in my eyes, pounding the bathroom floor, I cried my heart out to God. I remember in the days following, we had been six months by his side, eating, drinking, living in the hospital. And I decided that my mother and I were burnt out. So my mother and I and my father's mother, my grandmother were there. 
And I decided one Sabbath morning, Mom, we have to go to church. You and I, we are so burnt out. Our cup is so empty. We need to go to church. My mother did not want to leave his side. You know, what if something happened while she was gone? She would never forgive herself. I said, Mom, he's going to be fine. We're going to church and we'll come back. And as we're trying to go, my grandmother looks at my mom and says, oh, you're leaving his side, huh? What if something happens? I'm like, quiet, grandmother. (laughs) We are going to church. So I drag her to church for the first time in six months. And the message we heard that day was a message about the nearness of Jesus' return, about his soon coming. And I felt like it was the message that we needed to hear. And driving back from church to the hospital, my mother and I talked about how we've really been asleep. We've been Christians all our lives, in the Adventist church all our lives, but we were asleep and we needed to wake up and we needed to stop being so preoccupied with the things of this world and get ready for the next. And it really felt like this was an awakening moment that God wanted us to have. And so we sealed the decision in prayer and we really felt like God gave us what we needed that day. Went back to the hospital. My father's still there. He's fine. My grandmother's glowering, judgmental eyes at my mother saying, how was church? (laughs) And I take grandma and I say, well, grandma, we're going home, okay? So my mom can relieve you. And as we're stepping out the door, my mother says, hey, can you just help me turn him one more time before you leave? So I say, sure. So I walk by. We turn him. and My mother comments, boy, he just looks a lot more calm and peaceful, doesn't he? I'm like, you're right, mom, he does. And then my mom says, he's also looking a little more pale, And then a nurse pokes her head in, looks at the monitor, looks at my father, runs out. And the next thing I know, there's 30 people in the room. And they just call the code on my father. And someone jumps onto the bed and starts doing chest compressions. And what I realized then was that the reason why he looked so calm was because he had stopped breathing right after we turned him. And they start shocking him, trying to get his pulse back. It comes back for a few seconds and it starts petering off again. And as they're pounding away on his chest... I see my mother and my grandmother out in the hallway holding each other, crying. And then I look at my father, and now I see blood coming up his tracheostomy tube as these people are pounding away at his frail body. And then I think, this is not the way it should end. This is not right. So I grab the ICU attending's arm, and I say, please, at this point, just make him comfortable. And he looks at me, and he nods his head, and he orders everyone out of the room. I take one of my dad's hands in mine, and my mother goes to the other. And we stand there, and we watch his pulse fade away into nothing. And you know, that was one of the saddest moments of my life. But it was also one of the most sacred, because the timing of his death, to me, was not coincidence. There was no way that was coincidence. If he passed away by the simple act of us turning him, that means he was hanging on by a thread and he very well could have passed while we were at church for the first time in six months. Can you imagine the kind of guilt my mother would have lived with? She, she walked away from her post for one day in six months and that's the day my father passed away. Can you imagine her living with that? But God kept him there. He gave us a message we needed to hear. And when we came back, it was as if God was saying, now it's time to close this chapter of your life. And he put my father to rest. And he answered my prayer in the bathroom. And so all I could do in the midst of my sadness was to bend my knee and say, Lord, you're in control. Take my heart. 
let it be consecrated, Lord, for thee. So I shared this story with Mrs. Z's family. And at the end of it, I told them, don't let anyone push you into making a decision that you're not ready for. I said, I know you have faith, but I also know where you are right now. And you're wondering what God is doing. And I don't know what he's going to do either, but I do know that your mother's life is in his hands and that if you leave it up to his timing, he will work it out in his providence to show you what the right decision is. So until you receive clarity from him, don't do anything. And at the end of it, I had a word of prayer with them. And after the prayer, the mood was completely different. And there were tears all around. They thanked me profusely for coming back and sharing this story. And when I left that conference room the second time, it was much different because I felt that I left them in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it was only after the fact, but I saw that she, the daughter wrote this blog post after I left. And she said, I want to share with you all that last Friday we had a meeting with the ICU team and the hematology team. And as a family, we were crushed to hear their poor prognosis and their words, quality over quantity. They had informed us that there is a high risk of infection or another organ system failure. And if that arises, then as a family, we may have to make some very tough decisions. As you can imagine, we were tearful, but as a family, we told them that we were not going to give up on mom and that we know miracles happen and that it's God's final decision, not ours. They told us they would continue to do everything in their power to bring mom back to health. After hearing all of this, the team left us in the meeting room and told us to take as long as we needed to process and talk about things. A few minutes passed, and Dr. John Shin, the hematology doctor that prayed with us, returned to the room and said, I felt the need to come back and tell you a story. Ten years ago, I was in your exact position. My father had a brain tumor and was unconscious and on life support with no real hope for recovery. My heart goes out to your family because I know exactly what you're going through. Dr. Shin went on to explain that he battled with the decision of what was best for his father. He states that he prayed to God that if his father was supposed to pass, then God needed to take him when the time was right. He prayed to please not make him and his mother be put in a position to make that extremely difficult decision. His father did pass away several days later, and he said that he knows God was the one to make the final decision, so he didn't have to. He told us not to let the doctors push us into a decision, not to ever give up hope and lose faith. He then prayed with us. It was at that moment that I felt God's comfort and presence more than ever. See, I believe that the Holy Spirit prompted me to go back into that room. And the surest sign to me that God orchestrated this was that the end result of my obedience was that they were left in the presence of God. And I believe that the surest way that we can know that Christ is working in us is that others see Christ in us and not you. When people look at you and what they remember is Christ and God's presence, you can be sure that God was working through you that day. And I realize that the key to allowing your patients to see Christ in you is to listen and obey when Christ calls you to act on his behalf. It's not about technique or eloquence. It's not about education or personality. It's about being open to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in the moment, no matter how illogical or how inconvenient it seems. It, to me, it's summed up in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, which we all know, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and what? 
Lean not onto what? Your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. See, friends, I believe that the greatest barrier to allowing God to use us is that we tend to lean on our own understanding. The only reason why we would ever rob God of our service is because we decided to lean on our own understanding. The moment he prompts your heart and you say, that's a crazy idea, you're leaning on your own understanding. Learn to recognize the voice of your shepherd, the still small voice, and when he calls, learn to listen and to obey. And that, to me, is the heart of what it means to allow Christ to work in you. That's it. You bring your meager loaves and fishes to him, and he will take them and multiply them to bring out a work that you could have never done by yourself. So the next day, Saturday, the day after this conference happened, I come into work, and I notice that Mrs. Z's O2 requirements had actually come down a bit overnight. She was at 80%, now she was at 65 And here's an excerpt from the ICU attendings' notes, and he says, hey, overall it appears that her hypoxemia is slightly improved and her respiratory status is slightly more stable. However, on the heels of the emotionally charged meeting that happened the day before, what do you think the family did with this information? Can you guess? They took this and they said, Dr. Shen, this is it. God is healing our mother. Oh, no. It's like we took two steps forward and ten steps backwards in our goals of care discussions. You know, they're saying, whoa, now there is no way we're going to, God is going to do this thing. He's going to knock this out of the park. We can see it. And I trend her O2 requirements for the last week or so, and I see that this is within the realm of variation for her. And so I say, you know, yeah. I try to celebrate the small victory with them and say, yes, it is definitely lower. But she's been there about a week ago, too, and then she goes higher and then lower, and so this might just be noise. And I think overall, you shouldn't read too much into it. So again, the tension between how to leave room for God while still being realistic with your patients. And they're all looking at each other excited and saying, no, 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 remember, we prayed last night and we all laid hands on mom and we asked God to give us a sign. If he's going to heal her, he's going to give us a sign. And look, her oxygen is down this morning. This is the sign. And I walk out of it like, oh, no. I didn't tell my team, but <laughs> I figured that they would just dismiss her from their service. I just didn't want to even tell them what they told me. I said, oh, this is not going to end well. So that's Saturday. Sunday, I come in. And, of course, I check in her chart, and I'm like, oh, what's going to be today? And her oxygen came down to 45%. So this time, it really caught my attention because I trended her O2 requirements. And this is the lowest O2 requirement that she's been on since she entered the ICU. So this is new territory for her. I said, well, if this is within the realm of variation, now she's, she's making new ground. So that's kind of strange. And then I hear from the ICU team that they tried to withdraw the sedation a bit to, see, to check on her neurologic status, and they found that she's still there, obeying all commands, and she's neurologically very intact. So later that afternoon, I received word that they lowered her sedation enough that she was able to actually sit up in bed and dangle her feet at the side of her bed. And I was like, 
are you kidding me? And the nurse, with a big grin on her face, she's like, for 10 minutes. And as she told me that, all the family are in the background just nodding their heads saying like, you see what I told you? You see what I told you? This is it. God's giving us that sign. We ask for a sign. This is the sign. Dr. Shen, he's healing her. I was like, yes, something is definitely happening. But let's curb the enthusiasm because there's still tomorrow and your mother is still very sick on the vent. It's to the point that it caught my hematologist, uh, hematology attending's attention and she, he wrote in his notes that day, oh, she appears to have made some improvements in her pulmonary function. But you have to understand, this man, he is absolutely devoid of emotion. <laughs> his mother was probably a librarian and his father was, I'm sure, a robot. <laughs> That's He's got zero personality. He's all brain <laughs> with, with four limbs attached to a huge brain. <laughs> and he just wanders through the hallways and makes medical plans on people. He had zero emotion. He just says, it seems like she made some improvement. Move on. That's a lot more than I got out of him last week. But you can imagine the family reaction. The family reaction at this point, there was no dissuading them that this was anything other than an answer to their prayer. This was a bona fide miracle as far as they were concerned. And the blog post was this. Since that Friday afternoon, at the end of the day, before the others take off for the night, we lay our hands on mom and pray for God's will to be done. And mom has made steady improvements since. Over the weekend, her sedation was lowered and she was able to interact more with us. PT and OT started working with her and sitting her at the side of the bed doing light exercises. She's even been able to FaceTime with her grandson several times and also her niece in Texas. I know this is not some kind of irony. I think she meant to say coincidence. Mom has surprised us all, including the doctors, and I'm absolutely 100% positive, without a doubt sure, that God is in control and his healing hands are at work. So this is what we were dealing with. But I couldn't say anything in the light of the remarkable progress that she was making here. But the next day, Monday, what do you think happened? Her oxygen came down to 30%. (laughs) And the problem was that it keeps coming down and the ICU team is now running out of reasons to give them of why this might be just normal variation. And at this point, they just frankly told them, we don't know what's happening. But we're happy that it's getting lowered. And they're kind of having a little bit of uncomfortable egg on their face saying, well, yeah, she's improving. This is fantastic. And the family's saying, the Lord is healing my mother. And they're saying, well, something's happening. I'm not sure it's the Lord, but something's happening. But let's not celebrate too quick yet, okay? So all the hospital staff are just kind of the, you know, the sticks in the mud saying, well, you know, calm down. Yeah, no, this is remarkable. Let's take it one day at a time. And the family were just like on Facebook, on social media saying, God is healing my mother. And while all this is going on, we realize that, well, she's making progress from a respiratory standpoint, but the issue is that she's been intubated for greater than two weeks and she needs a tracheostomy. However, she, needs a, she would need a, a tracheostomy. She could only get a tracheostomy if she had adequate platelets and her platelets were not coming up. And so they decided to consult ENT to see if they'd be willing to do this even with a low platelet count in light of her improvements. So the next day, Tuesday, hospital day 21, her oxygen requirement stayed stable, but her PEEP came down, her end expiratory pressure to 12, which was a new low for her. 
And the ICU team continued to document respiratory improvement. And I have to admit that during this time, every time I came in to round on her, every time I opened her chart, I held my breath. Is today the day that the other shoe is going to drop? And is today the day that their hopes are going to get crushed? And I have to tell them, you see, it was all noise. And that's a lot of tension. So hospital day 23, Thursday. That Thursday was no different. I come in the morning, I open up the chart, and I brace myself for the inevitable bad news that I knew was going to come. And instead, what I find out is that she had made so much remarkable progress that they were actually going to consider going straight to extubation and skipping with the tracheostomy. And that was hugely unexpected on our end. The fact that she can go from being on death's door to now the ICU team is considering, let's extubate her, we had no words to describe what was going on. Now, Friday, August 25. In the midst of her continued respiratory improvements, all was not well, because despite her breathing improvements, we see that there were circulating blasts in her differential, her CBC, which means that even though her lungs were getting better, she had the underlying leukemia that wasn't going anywhere. And we knew that that was still uniformly fatal. So even though the ICU team were happy about her progress, we as hematologists, we were still the EORs in the room saying, yes, we're so happy that her breathing is improving, but guess what's waiting for her? The leukemia that brought her here to begin with. But still, I celebrated the victories that we could see. Another inexplicable development was that all of a sudden, her thrombocytopenia, her low platelets, started to resolve on its own. And every single day, the numbers were rising and rising. And it was to the point where we were saying, well, now you could even do a tracheostomy, even if you wanted to. You could do any procedure you want. It's so robust. And we didn't do a single thing to intervene, and the platelets started to rise. Now you could say, well, you know, you stopped the chemo, and her bone marrow is maybe recovering. None of her other counts were going up, but her platelets were inexplicably going up by themselves. So I celebrated that victory. Now, hospital day 26. Her PEEP came down to 7 that morning, and so the ICU team's goal for the day was they were going to try to extubate her. And later that morning, sure enough, we received word that she had been successfully extubated. The family was overjoyed, and all the doctors called it a miracle. And remember, we had not done any new intervention in her. And somehow, inexplicably, ever since that Friday night, when we had that care conference and we prayed, and the family gathered around and laid hands on her mother and asked for God's will to be done. From that moment, she had marched along and made steady progress. And all the doctors took note, and they started calling it a miracle. And I know these doctors did not have a religious background. Monday, August 28, hospital day 27. So following her exhibition, the ICU physician noted that she was doing remarkably well. Her voice was a bit hoarse, which is to be expected, but no evidence of permanent vocal cord damage. She was mobilizing better. Overall, she was improved to the point where they were considering transferring her to the floor. So the ICU attending told me later on that morning, he said in his entire career, he has never seen a patient so sick, intubated for so long, 
be successfully extubated without any vocal cord damage or cognitive deficits. He said, this is new territory for me. And he said, John, I don't know what this is, but if this is not a miracle, I don't know what is. And he walked away. I said, praise God. Praise God. So, Tuesday, August 29, here's my hematology attending, you know, the man with no emotion. He was absolutely amazed at the day-to-day improvements. And normally a very reserved man, even in his note writing, he uses words like, she has done exceedingly well in terms of recovery from her severe ARDS. And she has full hematopoietic recovery of her white count and her platelets. And he notes, well, she does still have 4% circulating blast, which may indicate recovering bone marrow or underlying residual leukemia, which is more likely. So the plan from our hematology standpoint was when she's ready, we have to do another bone marrow and see what's going on. So I led this discussion with the family and with the patient, and I told Mrs. E, look, we're so happy for you. This is incredible. All glory goes to God. But all is not well. Remember, you have the leukemia. So when you get strong enough, we're going to repeat a bone marrow. And just warning you, but it's likely going to show leukemia, okay? And so, but we'll talk about, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. I don't think they even heard me. They're just grinning ear to ear saying, all right, doctor, all right, yeah, sure. You want to come take a picture with us? <laughs> Doesn't she look so great, doctor? Look at her. She's just sitting up in bed, smiling. Isn't this amazing? I'm like, I don't think you just heard what I said. That's fine. That's, we can talk about this later. The leukemia can wait. Let's celebrate. So the ICU team felt that she was doing remarkably well. She passed her swallow eval, which is another milestone, and then she was downgraded from her high-flow OptiFlow to just low-flow nasal cannula, which is a tremendous accomplishment in and of itself. So then, September 1, hospital day 31, exactly two weeks after our care conference, Mrs. Z was transferred out of the ICU despite absolutely no new intervention being given in the ICU setting. This was truly a bona fide miracle. And everyone up and down the food chain was now freely using the miracle word, and we all nicknamed her the miracle lady. How is the miracle lady doing this morning? How is the miracle lady? No one was playing Eeyore anymore. She's out of the ICU, on the floor, extubated on just low-flow nasal cannula. This was a bona fide miracle. September 2, Saturday. Now that she's out of the ICU, on the hematology floor, we had to focus on her leukemia. She's now back to us. And we had to take care of what was originally what brought her into the hospital. So this was now 29 days after her getting her abbreviated chemo. So she's made a full recovery in terms of her counts. So now she's ready to tolerate some more chemo. But she still had these intermittent circulating blasts, which were very, very concerning to us. And so given that she had this suboptimal induction therapy, of course, this is likely to be still leukemia, and it's going to be life-limiting. But after witnessing the miracle of the last two weeks, nothing we could say would take away their perfect peace. Mrs. Z, she had this smile on her face every day. She says, Dr. Shin, how are you doing? I'm like, no, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm blessed. How's your family? I'm like, no, 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 no. This is about you. How are you doing? How are you feeling? And then every time I kind of sheepishly try to bring up, hey, just letting you know, we're going to do bone marrow soon, and it's probably not going to be the best of news, but at least you're still feeling good today. She's like, that's fine, Dr. Shin. I'm living on borrowed time as it is. And so anything extra from here is just gravy. And that's what she would say. And so 
one of the two of us was in perfect peace during this time. <laughs> and it was not me. But it, it reminded me of the story of Lazarus, you know? After Jesus raised him from the dead, Ellen White says that, well, we know the Bible says that the Pharisees conspired to kill Lazarus as well because so many people believed in Jesus as a result of that. And, and when the Pharisees were conspiring to kill Lazarus, how do you think Lazarus felt? Do you think he was concerned that they were going to try and, what, kill him? Right? I'm sure he was in perfect peace. He came back from the grave. What does he need to fear? Bring it on. And that's exactly how Mrs. Z was like. She says, God brought me back from the grave. What need I have to fear for anything that lies ahead for me? I said, well, that's, that's very true, Mrs. Z. I can't argue with that. Sunday, day 33. She continued to improve clinically on the floor, okay, sitting up, doing well. She's even ner- walking around the nursing pod, and her breathing is doing better. And I tell you, it threw me for a loop when I saw her just walking around the nursing pod, and I'm thinking, two weeks ago, you were prone in the ICU, and we're talking about compassion extubation. Like, this is, this is incredible. September 4. So... Our hematology attending continued to be amazed at her recovery. He kept calling it a miracle, you know, saying quite remarkable considering her unconventional induction regimen. That's his language. But however, as she got stronger and stronger, we focused more on her leukemia, and we said, okay, it's getting imminent. I think we can plan for a repeat bone marrow biopsy and talk about more chemo after that. So day 35, continues to get stronger physically, making remarkable progress. And we decide, okay, the next day we're going to do it. We're improving so much, we're going to actually plan for a bone marrow biopsy. So Wednesday, September 6th, we, repo- we repeated a bone marrow. And when the results came back, what do you think it showed? With the circulating glass in her CBC, it was a foregone conclusion, Right? but there was no evidence of leukemia in her bone marrow. Morphological complete remission, and when the genetic testing came back, no evidence of the genetic malformations that was initially detected on her bone marrow. Completely clean. And this gave me the shivers. And when I presented the bone marrow results to my attending, I wish I had a camera. If ever in my life I wish I had a camera, it was at that moment, because his face looked something like this. (laughs) And he was at a loss for words, and he started mumbling something about, this is a a miracle, this miracle. I can't believe this, this this doesn't happen. This does not happen. Because with her high-risk cytogenetics, we would expect her AML to be refractory, even to standard induction chemotherapy with full-dose chemo. But with this weenie cytarabine monotherapy and an abbreviated course at that, just six out of the seven days with interruptions in between, she went into morphologic complete remission. And he said, this is like a case write up. Like we have never seen this happen in this kind of scenario. Nothing short of a miracle. So now he was sold. Before she was the ICU's miracle and now she was hematology's miracle. And he, and he would walk up and down the hematology department in the myeloid group and knock on doors and say, hey, 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 you need to see this bone marrow. Remember that lady I was telling you about? Look at her bone marrow. They're like, is this the same patient? Like, yes. And they would compare before and after bone marrows and say, can you believe that this happened? Absolutely floored. So the entire myeloid group at Mayo were talking about her. So 
Thursday, September 7, hospital day 37. So my attending documented that she was in morphologic complete remission after just using cytarabine alone, despite her having a very high-risk karyotype at diagnosis. And what was incredible was that given her physical recovery and this newfound remission, he slipped it into his note that day. He didn't tell me, but he said, you know, um, we could consider going with a allogeneic bone marrow transplant in the future. And I was floored. I was like, this is that option, that only, that one single option that could provide her with deep remission that she could never be a candidate for. And now he's actually putting it into his notes saying, we could consider that at some point. It wouldn't be unreasonable. And I was like, what is going on here? So then Saturday, September 9, hospital day 39, after 43 days in the hospital, counting four days at the outside hospital, Mrs. Z was discharged home. Discharged home. She walked out of her own two feet. Okay? And so she continued, the plan was to get several more consolidative cycles of chemo in order to maintain her remission. And afterwards, assuming she continued to do well, the plan was to head her for transplant. So I followed her as an outpatient. Now, September 25, we repeated the induction with the full 7 plus 3 regimen. And you might wonder why, because even though you have morphologic remission, we want to induce the deepest remission possible, molecular remission, with no residual disease that we can detect. So we went ahead and gave her the full dose dose chemo, and she tolerated it very well this time. Then on October 19, I saw her labs, and I see circulating blasts in her CBC. Now this is causing concern for recurrent leukemia. So I pick up the phone and I say, Mrs. Z, I saw your labs from today and you tolerated chemo very well, but you have circulating blasts on your CBC and this might be indicative of underlying leukemia. Okay, Dr. Shin, thank you for letting me know. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm, I'm doing great, Mrs. Z, but... I hope you understand that we have to schedule an emergent bone marrow biopsy and and just brace yourself. You know, this might not come out very good. I understand. Praise God either ways. I'm doing very well, enjoying time with my family. Give your wife a hug for me. (laughs) Don't know if you're hearing me, Mrs. Z, but I'll talk to you after the bone marrow. Okay, Dr. Shin, thank you for calling. Hang up the phone. Again, one of the two of us is in perfect peace. (laughs) And it's not me. So on October 24, we repeat the bone marrow biopsy. And I hold my breath. And when it comes back, it continues to be negative. No evidence of leukemia. So I pick up the phone and I call her. I say, Mrs. Z, your bone marrow is completely clean. There's no evidence of leukemia. Oh, that's wonderful news. Thank you for calling, Dr. Shin. How are you doing? <laughs> and so we continue on in this fashion. See, this is the last day of her chemo. She came in. I really like this shirt and the message on the shirt. And, and this day, her daughter writes on her blog. She says, you know, mom met with Dr. Shin prior to getting admitted. And as always, he gave mom a sense of comfort with his words. And today he told mom that he spoke of her and her miracle this past Sunday at their church. They thought I went to a Sunday church. He also told mom that him and his wife pray daily for her and that they've officially adopted her as one of their own. And so... So this was a very touching moment for me. Now, how did the story end? November 6th or December 12th, she receives two more cycles of high-dose uh, cytarabine consolidation. 
January 19, 2018, she undergoes her bone marrow transplant and tolerates it very well, and to the present day remains leukemia-free. <laughs> is what I would have said when I was writing up this story earlier this year. But as of July 2019, a repeat bone marrow showed that she had relapsed AML. She went through more chemo, but this time it was completely different. It quickly became evident that this AML was different, more aggressive than the first, completely refractory to treatment. We were quickly running out of options. She was hospitalized with many of the same symptoms, respiratory distress, in the hospital. And nothing seemed to even slow down her her disease. So we had to have the hospice talk with her very quickly. Now, let me ask you, are you disappointed by this outcome? Well, I know I was. But does this negate the miraculous events that took place earlier? Could it be that all of this was just a product of random chance and that we were just reading patterns in the sand because we really wanted to believe that God was working? Could that be? I would say no, and here's why. This is the last picture I took with Mrs. E when I visited her in the hospital before she went to hospice. What was most remarkable to me throughout this whole process was that even though I felt terrible for her in her situation, she was still in perfect peace. In fact, it was she who ended up encouraging me and comforting me and not the other way around. And she told me that she was so thankful for God for the extra two years of life she was able to enjoy, that she had no fear of dying. She said she was ready. And it reminded me of the lyrics from that great hymn, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. See, she exemplified these lyrics to me. She viewed the trials of life as a blessing because they enabled her to draw near to Christ. And her example preached a powerful sermon to my heart. Because I think whether we're aware of it or not, we as physicians, we tend to focus on the wrong outcomes. We tend to look at the physical outcome to determine whether or not God has been faithful. But if we allow Christ to open our eyes and we can see a spiritual dimension of healing that's far more important than the physical, and we see this inexplicable peace, then we can be convinced that although in her case the disease was back and her body was dying, that she was victorious in Christ. So Mrs. E ended up passing away on September 15, last month. But you know, she developed the faith, the kind of faith that Job described, where he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. So as we go forth to minister to our patients, I pray that God will make instilling this kind of faith our ultimate goal. Sometimes God is willing to sacrifice the body to save the soul, and we leave the outcome to him. Whether he heals our patients in this lifetime or on resurrection morning, let's leave that to him. But may we be, first and foremost, healers of the soul. Let's always point their eyes heavenward to Christ so that they may experience his perfect peace. And in so doing, we can know that Christ truly has been working in us. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for giving us these wonderful moments of experience with our patients who teach us so much about your love, about what faith really means. And now, Lord, help us to have this kind of faith that gives us a perfect peace in you. May we leave all outcomes to you, and may we be the thread in your hands that you weave together for the outworking of your great design. 
All these things we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.